Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Now, Paul starts this letter writing to churches, not church, but churches. What he means by churches is not different denominations, but obviously different congregations. And he's writing to different congregations in an area of Galatia, which would be in modern-day Turkey, maybe more like southern Turkey. And these are churches that, if you read in Acts 13 and 14, these are churches that many of which Paul himself planted. He had gone and preached the gospel. He had seen people be saved. He had, he had equipped them and discipled them. He had appointed elders and moved on to the next place. And so these are places where Paul had invested a great deal of time and energy and, and prayer into seeing God do a work. And God had done a great work. Many churches were planted in this area. And Paul is writing to these churches with a sense of urgency. In fact, as we go through this letter to the, the churches in Galatia, we'll notice that there's a lot of similar things to other letters that Paul would write later on. He deals with the supremacy of love when we get to chapter 5 and how what the Spirit is going to produce is love and that's what we need to walk in and see happening just as he did to the Corinthian church. We'll see that he talks a lot about in the first and second chapter about the fact that he is an authentic apostle. He does a lot to back up his apostleship like he did to the church in, in, in Corinthians in Corinth in the letter of 2 Corinthians. And we'll also see him make sure that his readers understand the importance of the doctrine of justification by faith, that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He'll do that as he did also in the letter to the Romans. But what's different about Galatians is Paul uses phrases and, 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 and a style and a tone that's way more intense and way more personal than other things that he's written. And I believe part of that is because of how much he had invested in these, church, in these churches. And part of it also is the fact that he knew the damage that was being done. Because what had happened is after he went and planted these churches in Galatia, there were a group of men, Jewish men, who said they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but believed that a Gentile, and, and Galatia was of course a Gentile area, that a Gentile had to first become a Jew before he could become a Christian. You couldn't actually be saved just by receiving Christ as your Savior. You had to be circumcised as well. You had to take that covenant of the Old, of the Old Testament, that, that sign of the covenant of the Old Testament, and keep the Old Testament law as well as believe that Jesus was your Messiah if you're actually going to be saved. And Paul knew the damage that was going to be done by these guys. And so when he writes, he writes a letter that's pointed, that's urgent, that's personal, and in some places pretty harsh. Because he understands the damage that happens to churches when they cease being gospel-centered. He understands the damages of what happens when we think, well, hey, we're saved by grace. We can do what we want. And licentiousness creeps in. And we begin to act like anybody else in the world. He understands the damage that happens when we start thinking, oh, man, I've got to do more. Yeah, I'm glad Jesus died for me, but I've got to believe that. And I've got to do this, that, or the other. And that legalism comes in and troubles people and, and twists people up and, and causes them to really actually walk away from Jesus and stop trusting in Him. He knows the damage that's done by these people, and so the words that he uses at times are pretty harsh. 
We see in the very beginning when Paul addresses this group, when he says, when he identifies himself, he does so in a way that, again, even the tone is a bit, it's a bit pointed. He says he's an apostle, literally an ambassador, or one sent with a commission. And he says, listen, this apostleship, <clears throat> it's not from men, nor is it through men, he says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, when we get into the rest of chapter 1 next week, we'll see Paul talking about his apostleship, talking about how he received the gospel by a direct revelation of Jesus. But just know this, he knows that those who've come after him, who are wanting to add to the gospel rules, regulations, and laws, those who have come after him, they're going, well, who's Paul anyway? What gives him the right? And so Paul starts off the letter by saying, listen, I'm an apostle because Jesus made me an apostle. We'll talk more about that next week because it's interesting to me that before Paul continues in that vein, even as he's welcoming or greeting the church, even as he's uh, uh, addressing the main issue, he brings up an issue greater than even the authority of his own apostleship. He brings up the issue of the gospel itself. Now, the gospel, the word gospel, you guys probably know, simply means good news. It means just that. It means good news. But the way the word gospel is used in the New Testament, it's bigger than just some good news, you know? If Rob were to come to me this morning and say, hey, guess what? My dad won the lottery. I get 1,000 pounds. I go, oh, good news, you know? That's some good news. If, he came to, if one of you came to me and say, hey, guess what? We prayed for someone and they were healed. We'd say, oh, good news, you know? That's good news. So, but the good news is not just some good news, not just some positive information that's put out there. It's actually the good news. Not just some good news, it's the good news. In fact, you see the definite article almost always before the word gospel in the New Testament. Not just gospel of or some good news of, but the gospel of. And it's interesting too, some of the phrases that go after the gospel to describe what the gospel is. Matthew over and over calls it, Jesus himself called it the gospel of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 20, Paul called it the gospel of grace. The book of Romans calls it the gospel of his son. We see in the book of, uh, of Ephesians, it's, it's referred to as the gospel of your salvation, and in another place, the gospel of peace. In, in the book of Revelation, it's referred to as the everlasting gospel. And so these phrases identify that we're not just talking about some good news like, hey, some information that you can add to your life and it'll make your life better. No, it's way bigger than that. It's the good news. It's the most important reality, the most important information that you can understand and get your head around and accept. Mark's gospel puts it plainly. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll see in a minute how Paul calls it the gospel of Christ. In fact, he says it 11 times in, in his different epistles. He calls the, refers to the gospel as the gospel of Christ. In other words, the good news is about Jesus. The good news is Jesus. The thing is, guys, that we get in a place where we can say, yeah, it's always about Jesus. And we want to be a Jesus-focused church. And we... We want to be that kind of a church that just wants to talk about Jesus. And, and yet we can still miss the mark. We can still not see the gospel as the gospel, but just Jesus as a gospel. You know, 
Jesus' good news. His death, his resurrection, that's some really good news. It's even great news, we might say. But do we see it as the good news? Paul, even in, 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 in greeting the churches in Galatia, uses words that tell us, really help us to see that which only Jesus can do, that which only the gospel accomplishes. He starts with this basic greeting in verse 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, most of the letters that Paul wrote, in fact, all the letters that Paul wrote, he started with that phrase, grace and peace. The word grace, the Greek word keros, was a typical greeting in Greek culture. You, you, like we say, hello, hi, right? How are you? That's a typical greeting in our culture. The Greeks would say grace, keros. It means beauty. It means attractiveness. It's, it was a typical greeting. Now the Jews, on the other hand, when they would greet each other, they would say shalom or peace to you. They'd say shalom. Now these two words, grace, peace, these two greetings, in a sense they are, Paul, basically recognizing that there are Greeks, mainly Greeks that he's referring to, but also Jewish converts or, or Greeks that had converted to Judaism who would have greeted each other with shalom. But it's more than that. It's more than that. When Paul uses the terms grace and peace, when Paul greets with the terms grace and peace, those words themselves are pregnant with meaning because of the gospel. In fact, guys, those words don't mean anything else. They don't mean anything more than hi or hello unless they refer to Jesus. Now, grace is really what we might call the source of the gospel. Grace is the source of the gospel. And that's, of course, who Jesus is. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We understand grace because we see Jesus. We can receive grace because we see Jesus and we know Jesus. Now, the, the Bible says in the book of Acts that when, when Peter was preaching, he said this. He says, Nor is there salvation found in any other, literally any other name, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What the name is? The name is Jesus. Jesus is the source of grace. We have grace because of Jesus. You guys have probably heard the acronym before, grace standing for God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. We have favor with God. We see the beauty of God. We have access to God because of the grace that's brought to us from Jesus. Now, if grace describes the source of our salvation, peace describes, listen, the substance of our salvation. Peace. Now, when the Bible talks about peace, it's not just talking about what you feel. That's part of it. But it's talking about three things. First, peace with God. The Bible says in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, major theme throughout Galatians, we'll talk about that later, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, guys, you might not understand this or not, or you might have a hard time receiving this, but the Bible teaches plainly that before a person is born of the Spirit, that person is an enemy of God. That person has made themselves an enemy of God. God is their king, God is their sovereign, God is their God, he's their ruler. But they've said, no, I don't want to follow God, I don't want to believe God, I don't want to trust God, I'm going to do my own thing. That's how we are naturally. We are at enmity with God. We're God's enemy. So what happens is, 
we, if we realize we're God's enemy, we need to think, oh man, is there a condition of peace? Is there a way I can have peace? I can stop being His enemy. I don't need war with God because it's a war that I will lose. Is there a way? Yes, there is a way. Jesus is the way. We're justified by faith. We put our faith in what Jesus has done for us and God says, listen, I take that as a condition of peace. I say that's enough to end the war between me and you. We have peace with God. You might not have felt, you know, sensed the warfare with God before you were a Christian. You might not even have known that before you were a Christian, but that was the reality. That's why Jesus talks about when following him, he uses an, an analogy, I think it's in Luke 14, where he talks about, you know, how, who goes to war without first thinking, hey, with 10,000, can I beat 20,000? And if not, if he realizes, does he, does he not go and make and look for conditions of peace to be right with Him. In other words, if you're going to be walking with God, do you understand what that requires? If the head of the Taliban came here and said, hey, I know I blew everybody up you know, in July a couple years ago, but no big deal. How about I just, I'm on your side now. We go, wait a second, there needs to be some conditions of peace here. We need to make sure this is a, a really going to be done in an accurate way. Anybody who's the enemy of somebody else has to make that relationship right before they can walk together. The thing is, God has provided to, to, for us to be made right with Him. That's the peace that we have with God. But also, it's a peace from God. The Bible says in John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And this is what we might call an experiential peace, a peace from God. Guys, this is what the Lord wants us to, to dwell in. This is what the Lord wants us to experience. God wants His peace to rule and reign in our hearts. How does that come? It comes from Jesus. It only comes from Jesus. In fact, we'll see in a minute that these guys had no peace. Since the Judaizers came along and undermined the gospel that Paul preached, these guys had no peace. But the gospel is meant to bring peace, peace with God and peace from God. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have times of stress, but as the Bible talks about in Philippians 4, you know what? We're anxious for nothing but all things through prayer and supplication. We make our requests known to God. And what happens? The peace of God which surpasses understanding. It's better than knowing what's happening. Guards our hearts and mind. God wants us to experience peace. He wants us to experience peace. Let me ask you a really simple question. Do you have the peace from God right now? Are, are, do, are you at peace with God? Do you, are you settled in your hearts that not only is everything right with God, I know that intellectually, but you know what? It's good to be right with God. I'm at peace. Things are okay. The Lord has me. Do you experience that right now? That's what's promised to us in the gospel. But lastly, there's one more thing. The peace of God. Now the peace of God has to do with the fact that not only has God reconciled our, us to himself, but God's reconciled us to each other. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, For he himself is our peace who has made both one, both in the context of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. In other words, the peace that we have with each other, the way that we relate to each other rightly is based on not us, but him. It's based on the gospel of Jesus. This is why later on he'll talk about how there's, there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, but we're all one in Christ. Why do we have peace with each other? How do we get along? We get along based on the gospel. We have peace with each other that way. That's why we make every effort to be right with each other, because of the gospel. 
So when Paul greets the church, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's way bigger than just a greeting. It's a reminder of what the gospel is. It's a reminder of the fact that Jesus himself defines what these words mean. And then he says this in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean by this present evil age? Well, he's talking about sort of two things in one. He's talking both about a when and a what. He's talking about a when in this sense. If you look at the chart on the screen, you see that there's, there's a reality that Jesus came the first time, of course you guys know. He died on the cross for our sins after living a perfect life teaching great things. As he predicted, he died on the cross in, in taking our punishment on himself. He was resurrected, and then what happened? He ascends to heaven. Now, we know there's a time when he's going to come back. Jesus told us that in John chapter 14. He's going to return, and when he comes, when he returns, he's going to reign over all the earth. He's going to set up a literal physical kingdom on this earth and reign over the entire earth with a rod of iron, the Bible says. Now, we live in that in-between Place. Remember we talked about the kingdom before, how the kingdom is already but not yet. You remember that? How the fact that we are in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is within us because Christ lives in us by His Holy Spirit and He's reigning in us by His Holy Spirit because of the gospel. And yet we're not yet in the kingdom because Christ has not yet returned with the kingdom. Therefore, we live in this in-between, in this tension, which Paul calls this present evil age. Now he calls it the present evil age because it's, uh, what's going on here is that the form of this world, the form of this age, is one that, except for individual believers, it's not under the rule of Christ yet. The Bible says in the, in the book of 1 John that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So what makes this age any evil than any time before? Because hasn't the world been under the sway of the wicked one ever since, uh, ever since the fall? It has. But now we're in a season, guys, where what? According to Revelation 12, 12, the devil knows he has but a short time. Now that, that reference has its ultimate fulfillment in the, the, what we call the 70th week of Daniel. That's a, a whole other story we won't get into today. But there's a reality, guys, that we live in a time frame, an age where things are worse and worse, where the devil's trying to stir up things all over the place. And guess who the devil hates the most? Us those who have believed the gospel. Guess what the devil wants to attack the most? The gospel. When Paul talks about this present evil age, he's saying, listen, we live in a time where the enemy is working overtime. And he is trying to undermine the power of the gospel. But what does Paul say? Paul says of Jesus, he gave himself for our sins, literally as a sacrifice for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. This is what the gospel does. It doesn't just define words like grace and peace. The gospel actually brings deliverance, or the word means to rescue. You see, guys, what the Bible promises, and what we'll see later on as we go through the book of Galatians, is this the reality that the Bible, I mean, I'm sorry, that the gospel is so powerful that it doesn't just promise us heaven one day. The gospel actually brings deliverance today. We don't have to live under bondage in this present evil age. Now, we still sin, we still fall short, we still struggle. But the reality is, we don't live 
as those who are in bondage anymore. We've been set free from that. We've been delivered from that. We've been rescued from that. Paul's going to talk about that later in Galatians. And so it's almost like Paul's saying, listen, do you recognize, guys, that this is what the gospel does? Do you realize this is what Jesus has done? He has shown you grace. He has brought you peace. He has delivered you from this present evil age. And he says in verse 4, He's done this according to the will of our God and Father. In other words, the Father wants us to be saved. To whom, listen, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, whenever Paul starts saying to whom be glory, it's what we call a doxology. It's this time where God just, where Paul just uh, kind of bursts into praise. Jude does the same thing at the end of his epistle and we see other, other apostles doing a similar thing where they just sort of break forth in praise thinking about what's going on. But there's something here to this as well. Because again, something that only Jesus can do for us is reveal to us the very glory of God. And when we talk about the glory of God, we're not just talking about uh, the fact that we want to give God all the attention. You know, The fact that we want to say, oh God, all glory goes to you and you deserve all attention or, or all honor. It's bigger than that. In the Old Testament, when they talked about the glory of God, they were talking about, the, they call it the kabod. It was actually like the very substance of God in a sense. It was the tangible presence of God. It was the revelation that God brought to himself. Like when, when he led the children of Israel by a pillar of fire by night or a pillar of cloud by day, when he would descend into the temple on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when he would do these things, he was representing or he was showing his glory. When Moses knew that God had promised he was going to bring the children of Israel into the promised land through Moses leading Moses, who's going to lead us? God says, I'm going to send my angel before you. Moses goes, that sounds great, Lord, but I need to know you're with me. So if I know you're with me, if, so I can know that you're with me, can you please show me your glory? I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, here's the deal, Mo. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by and you'll see the train of my glory behind you. You'll see my goodness. And when God does that to Moses, he proclaims, God proclaims as he does it, the Lord gracious and merciful, willing to forgive, and reveals himself through the spoken word. Guys, here's the deal. That foreshadows what we have in the gospel. We get to see the actual glory of God. We know the weight of it. Now, I don't want to overemphasize experience because I think too many churches overemphasize experience to the detriment of faith because faith is, is not what you feel it's who you trust but there's a reality guys there's a reality that anybody who's been born of the spirit anybody who's come to the place where they go oh man I need God and they said God save me and they've believed, they've seen that Jesus is the Savior, that person knows a bit of the glory of God. Guys, that's what we need. That's, that's, that's what we need. We need to see the very glory of God in the gospel of Jesus. That's how we're delivered. That's how we're set free. Jesus said this. He said to the Jews that believed him, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Guys, listen, that freedom is bigger than just some sort of uh, positional truth. Oh, I'm free now. Uh, I I know that I don't have to be 
uh, a slave to sin. Oh, I know that one day I'll be in heaven. It's bigger than just that. He came to set the captives free. He came to liberate us, guys, to live in freedom. Now, you might be thinking, John, you're making a big deal about this. Maybe you should wait to get further on in Galatians. This is just the greedy. What I'm trying to paint for you guys is what I believe Paul was trying to paint for the church in Galatia. He's trying to say, do you realize what is at risk if you turn away from the gospel? You turn away. If you turn away from Jesus, what's at risk is you have no way to define what grace really is. You have no way to experience the very peace of God or to be at peace with God. You have no means of deliverance and you have no way that you can have the glory of God revealed to you. The Bible says in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. This is what John says about Jesus. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Guys, this is the work of the Holy Spirit to help us behold the very glory of God in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is good news, man. We can actually know intellectually and experientially and actively the very glory of God because of the gospel. When Paul begins to talk about Jesus and what he's done, how good it is of what he's done, he has to say, and glory to the Father forever and ever, amen. But then he changes his tone in verse six. And he says to the churches in Galatia, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who would trouble you and want to pervert the, the gospel of Christ. Now, now, Paul had said in the book of Romans that the gospel was the power of God and the salvation. That's what he had said. Now, if, if the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, it provides all these great things for us that we just talked about, how, how is it that that gospel can be hindered? How is it that people can hear the gospel? They can hear, and they can even repeat it. Okay, I heard what you said. Jesus is God. He died for my sins. He rose from the dead. He sent him to heaven. Uh, He paid for the the wrath of God on me. Okay, okay, I hear what you say. How can they hear the very power of God and not be changed? What hinders the gospel? It's in a sense, too, Paul is is saying here, when he says, I marvel that this is happening, he's saying, I'm blown away. I'm blown away that you'd actually do this. So it, it begs the question, What would hinder us from experiencing the gospel? What would hinder us from us experiencing what only Jesus can do? Well, Paul gives us some hints. In verse 6, when he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, he, he reminds us that this is not just about turning away from some sort of a doctrine. This is about turning away from the person of God. In other words, this is really about us neglecting relationship. In fact, I'll tell you what, this is what you'll often find. If, there's no, if you're not experiencing the peace of God or peace from God, it's usually because you've stopped fellowshipping with God. You've kind of stopped away in a relationship. Let me give you an analogy from life. People who are married separate from their spouses long before they ever divorce their, their spouses. They, they, they walk away from the person long before they ever walk away from the marriage. You know what I'm saying? People might get divorced, but before they get divorced, there has been months, maybe years before, of a a parting of ways, a a dissolving of relationship. And that's usually what happens with us. We stop 
fellowshipping with God, and eventually we walk away and go, you know, I don't know if this Jesus stuff is enough. I don't know if it really works. Maybe I got something wrong. And a lot of times, the bottom line is, we're just not fellowshipping with God. We are not in communion with the creator of the universe when we can be through the gospel. It's often just simply a neglect of him. It's interesting because the phrase there, you are turning away, it's, it's, a, it's a military phrase. It means you're switching loyalties. You are marching with Jesus. You are enjoying being under his, his authority. You are enjoying being his child. And then what happened? You decided to turn away. It blows me away. Why would you quickly turn away? But notice it says you turned away from the grace of Christ to what? A different gospel. Which he says is not another of the same kind. And then he says this in verse 7. He says, but there are some, listen, who are, there are some who trouble you. The word for trouble there, it means to, it means to stir somebody up. It means to agitate. It means to, to make them feel totally disturbed. Have you as a Christian ever felt like, oh no, oh no, God doesn't love me anymore. Oh no, I've lost my salvation. Oh no, it's all over for me. You ever felt that way? Now, forget about the, the reality or, or the doctrine of can you lose your salvation or can't lose your salvation. That's actually immaterial. I'm not talking about whether or not that's the case. We can debate that another time. But what I'm talking about, have you asked someone who knows they're a Christian ever been in a place where you were so afraid, oh no, I must not be right enough with God. I must not be saved anymore. Were you that troubled? Because that's exactly what these guys do. These people that came along, these Judaizers, they came and they began to tell the people, well, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You're actually not saved yet. Or you should have gotten saved, but you didn't. And they're trying to trouble these people who have actually put their faith in Jesus. Check this out. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this to them. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if if he comes, that is, a, any other preacher comes who preaches another Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel, you may well put up with it. See, this is what false teachers do. This is what those who come and do. They don't just say, they don't say, hey, don't believe in Jesus, it's worthless. They don't say, don't believe in Jesus, that's not going to help you. They go, oh, it's good, you believe in Jesus. Really good, well done, I believe in Jesus. But it's not quite enough. And really, the truth is, you don't see Jesus the right way. This is how Jesus really is. This is who Jesus actually is. It's good that you want to be filled with the Spirit. That's really good. But, you know, actually, you don't really understand the Spirit, you know. I think you're, you're really in the Spirit the wrong way. And so here's really the Holy Spirit. He's just the active force of God. Or it's just a feeling that you might have, whatever the case might be. Or, yeah, the, the gospel, yeah, it's so important, the gospel. But, you know, I don't think you really understand the good news. This is what the good news really means. And they bring a different Jesus. They preach a different Holy Spirit. They preach a different gospel. And they say, what you know of Jesus isn't enough. Now, Paul is saying about these guys, he's saying, listen, these guys are simply troubling you. They are stirring you up. They're trying to undermine the security that you had in Christ, the assurance that you had in Christ, the faith that you had in Christ. And he'll say later on, and they're trying to get you to believe in them. Guys, listen. Paul says this is very serious stuff. These guys were trying to get the, the Christians in Galatia 
to relate to God on another term besides the gospel. They were trying to set a different standard by which these guys would relate to God. Oh, yeah, it's the gospel, but it's the gospel and this. They were trying to give them different terms of relationship. That's why they were troubled. Let me ask you something. Whether it was a person preaching this to you or you just listening to the voice of the enemy, are you troubled for that same reason? Are you in a place where you're going, oh man, I, I don't know if I'm right with God. I don't know if I can be right with God. I, I gotta get my, my life straightened up. I gotta sort out my life. I'll sort out my life and then I'll be able to rate, uh, relate rightly to God again. Look out. Watch out because that's a different gospel. If you are approaching God for any other reason than the finished work of Jesus, you're approaching God by a false gospel. Look out. Look out. Be careful. Don't be troubled by that. God doesn't want you to be in this place where you're always like, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. John said both in his gospel and his epistle, these things were written that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, this has got nothing to do with the doctrine of whether or not you can lose your salvation. This has to do with the reality of God desires you to be so changed by the gospel, so assured of the value of what Jesus has done, that you know you can come to him. That's why the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The therefore points to the reality that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. The therefore points to the reality that Jesus has already done enough to give us access to God. Let me ask you something. If you haven't prayed in six months, does that somehow devalue the work of Christ? No, it devalues your application of the work of Christ, but what Christ did is still valid. If you haven't read your Bible in six months, does that somehow block your access to God? No, it means that you're not, you're not hearing from Him if you're not reading the Word, but the bottom line is the access is still there. What provides you access? Why can you boldly go before God and find grace to help, obtain mercy? Why? Only because of Jesus. But these guys came along, these Judaizers came along and told these Galatians, no, 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 you actually can't approach God unless you're circumcised first. No, you actually can't approach God unless you're keeping the law. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but make sure you're doing this as well. And these guys were stirred up and troubled. Why are you stirred up and troubled? Guys, what's keeping us from just boldly going to God? Because I'll tell you what, what's probably keeping us is a false gospel. Now, he says these guys pervert the gospel of Christ. But then he says this. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we'll talk about that word accursed when we get to the bottom of verse 9. But Paul moves from talking about this reality that when we neglect relationship, that's, what, that's actually hindering the work of the gospel. The gospel is to remind us. The Spirit of God will tell us, Man, Jesus, what he did was enough. Go to God. Find grace to help in time of need. Ob- obtain mercy. Do you need grace and mercy? You get it through the gospel, man. Come to God. The Holy Spirit will always lead us that way. The Holy Spirit will always 
convict us of our sin and say, hey, that is sin, Christ died for it. If the devil says, that's sin, you better get it sorted out before you ever approach God. The Holy Spirit always say, that's sin, Christ died for it. The good news is you can come boldly, obtain grace to help, find mercy, you can get that now. So neglecting relationship does that. But more than that, listen, when we ignore that revelation, when we ignore what God has detailed in his word, that also hinders the work of the gospel. Paul says this, you know, if, if it's we, if it's, if it's one of a, a, the apostles, myself or anybody else, or an angel from heaven, if we're saying anything else than what we've already said to you, he says, let us be accursed. Now what Paul's doing there is this. He's saying, listen, he's not denying that he has apostolic authority. We'll talk about that next week. But he's saying, listen, he's saying, listen, the, the real authority is not the fact that I said these things. It's what was said. It's the gospel itself it's the substance of the gospel itself. That's the authority. See, guys, it's not the reputation of the person or the preacher. It's not the credibility that you think that person has. Paul's given us a warning. Listen, I don't care how great these Judaizers look. I don't care how great the guy is in the pulpit. The bottom line is, it's not his reputation or it's not his delivery. It's the content of what he says. And if the content of what he says doesn't fit with the gospel, chuck it out. If I come to you and the content of what I say doesn't fit with the gospel, chuck me out. That's what he's saying. He's given a warning. And the warning is, listen, anybody who would preach anything other than the gospel that's been revealed here, let that person be accursed. Now guys, listen, this is why we need to be like the Bereans. You guys remember the Bereans in Acts 17? The Bereans were more fair-minded, the Bible says, than those in Thessalonica in this way. They were noble or fair-minded because they did this in that they received the word with all readiness. In other words, they weren't suspicious when someone was teaching them. They wanted to hear, yeah, God's going to speak to us. They received it with readiness, but what do they do? And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Should you believe what I say because it's me saying it? Absolutely not. You guys should go back to the word of God and say, is what John's saying actually accurate? Does that fit with what is actually being said there. Does that fit with what the Scripture actually teaches? You should go back to the Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say? Because it's the revelation of God. It's what God has revealed through His Word. What God has revealed through the Gospel. That's the standard. Not me. Not the Pope in his Pope-mobile. You know? Not some governing board of churches. This is the authority. And Paul's saying, listen guys, this has to remain the authority. Because what's at stake is grace and peace and deliverance and the very glory of God. The gospel has to stay the authority. Now, interesting, he says this. Look at in verse 9, he says, And we said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what, he have, what you have received, let him be accursed. And he says, I say again, he's talking about the fact that when he was there initially, when Paul was, was planning these churches, he had shared the same gospel that he explains here in Galatians, okay? He shared the same gospel. And Paul's saying, here's the deal, I'm saying this to you again. And again he says, if, if anybody preaches something else in this gospel, let him be accursed. And the word for accursed, it literally means doomed for destruction. It's a word that was used to describe, um, it was, well, it's, it's used to describe a, 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 a sacrifice that was offered to God. In other words, you brought a lamb, and that lamb would be, the, word, the Greek word is anathema. It would be doomed to destruction. It was meant to die. 
But it also can mean that which has is, is, is been given over to idols. It's only going to be destroyed. And, and it's a very harsh term. When, when Paul says, let them be accursed, it is if he's saying, to hell with them. To hell with them. If they're going to preach a false gospel, to hell with them. Now you might think, gosh, that sounds harsh. Doesn't Paul want those false teachers to be saved? Of course he does. Paul would want anybody to be saved. As the Bible says, if that's the heart of God, God would say he would desire that all men should come to repentance. But the idea is this. Hey, they've heard the gospel. They want to pervert the gospel. They want to turn people away from the gospel. If they're bound for hell, let them go. If that's what they want, fine, let them go. But you don't be pulled away from them. Guys, listen, we should have compassion on people who have been duped into false religion. We should have compassion. Jude tells us to make a distinction between false teachers and those who have been deceived by false teachers. We need to have compassion on those who have been pulled into false doctrine and compassionately and patiently and lovingly say, you know what, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. We should do that. You know, that's not the gospel of the New Testament. We should bring that up. We We should do that. But we draw a distinction between the person who's being duped into that and the person who knows better and is propagating that openly. Especially those that, that John talks about, they were among us and they went out from us. I'm not talking about people who have left our church. I'm talking about people who have left the faith to go on after something else. A good friend of mine uh, met a girl in Bible college and they got married and had a couple of children and he's in the service and as they were in the service, she was really, really lonely. It was hard. It's a hard life to be in military service. And she met a really nice family of Mormons. And because that they were only at this particular base there, it seemed like everybody was Mormon, she got sucked into the Mormon church and ended up leaving her husband and becoming a Mormon. I saw that's heavy. And now her whole goal, my friend's, of course, totally heartbroken, her whole goal, he didn't want a divorce. She insisted on it. My friend is heartbroken because she's insisting on indoctrinating their children into Mormonism. Now, he grieves for her, he prays for her, he loves her, but he has to say, anathema, anathema, let her be cursed. I, I, can't, I cannot give up my kids because this woman refused the gospel when she knew it so clearly. Guys, here's the reality. Paul deals with this because of so much that's at stake. And there's a warning here. If we ignore what God's revealed to us, there are consequences, heavy consequences. Do you remember when Jesus told that story of the rich man and Lazarus and they both die and they go to Sheol? Remember that? Remember as he tells that story that, that what Abraham says at the end of that story? When the rich man who had died in unbelief was tormented in hell and was saying to Abraham, Father Abraham, please send someone back. Let Lazarus be resurrected. If he goes back from the dead, oh, what will happen is that my brothers will believe. And Abraham says this. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Guys, God holds us accountable to what he's revealed to us. Why? Because what he's revealed to us is meant to set us free. What is left for us if we reject that? If you find yourself in prison and a guard goes, listen, I want to set you free. I'm going to use my authority to set you free. Here's the key. 
And you throw back in his face saying, thanks again, I'll pick the lock myself. What's left for you but to stay there in bondage, to stay there in jail? That's what Paul's saying. Guys, listen, when we refuse the revelation of the gospel, there's nothing left for us. Paul is saying this to these people in Galatia because, listen, he loves them. His heart is broken for them. We'll see later on in chapter 3 how he had a great relationship with them. But he's saying, listen, we can't put up, you mustn't put up with this false gospel. And anyone who's going to preach a false gospel, let them be accursed. If they're assured that, they, they, that Jesus isn't enough and that they can add to what Jesus has done, hey, if they are insisting on going to hell, let them go. But you stand and say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not believing it. Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He says, therefore I said to you, that you will, he said this to the Jews, by the way, to the Pharisees, those who believed that they were, had established their own righteousness with God. He said, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. Guys, listen. There's a lot in the word of God that it's hard to get our head around. There's a lot of things that we can differ on. We can disagree on. There's a lot of things that we can, we can disagree on, the timing of the Lord's return. Uh, we can disagree on the, the exact uh, way that God created the world and the universe. Uh, we can disagree on who Melchizedek is, you know. But what we cannot disagree on, which we, what we dare not disagree on, is who Jesus is and what the gospel is and what he's done for us. It's the very power of God and the salvation. Anything less than that, anything added to that, leaves us accursed. It leaves us anathema. This is why Paul's being so firm. Guys, Jesus warned the Pharisees, not because he was just angry at them, not because he was thumbing his nose at them. He loved them and was warning them, don't you know, unless you believe that I am he. It's interesting. You don't see it here on your screen because I didn't type it out that way. But he, the word he, the pronoun he in your Bibles is italicized when everything else isn't. Because literally what Jesus is saying is unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am. How did God reveal himself? The I am. Guys, if we don't see Jesus as God the Son, the only way we could be made right, made right with God the Father, the only way for us to have peace with God, peace from God, and the peace of God. If we don't see him that way, what's left for us? And if other people want to come and say, oh, that's nice, but you better do this as well. We have to make this kind of stand that Paul made and say, no, let them be accursed. Paul says this, and I'll close with this in verse 10. He says, Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You know, Paul will say later on in, in, in this letter to the Galatians, he'll say, you know, if I didn't preach the cross, then why am I still being persecuted? In other words, if I didn't preach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, if I didn't preach that, why am I still getting picked on by these Jewish leaders? Why am I still being persecuted? You know, guys, it would be easier for us 
it would be practically more beneficial in the sense of we would grow faster as a church if we just only talked about the nice things of God. If we used language like, well, you know, Jesus is God for me. You know, he's the go- it's the gospel for me. You know, it might not be for you, but it is for me. Man, I'll tell you what, that would make it so much easier for people to sit and listen. But is that really the gospel? I, I think Jesus is, is God. You know, I, you might think he's different, but I think he's God. Is that the gospel? No, the gospel is the proclamation of the very good news, the good news, that God himself became a man, walked this earth, died for our sins, rose from the dead, is returning soon in glory. Guys, that's the, the, the power of God and the salvation. We want to please God. You see, guys, what hinders this gospel, what hinders what only Jesus can do, is not just when we neglect the relationship, it's not just when we ignore the revelation of who he is, it's when we begin to fear man. You know what? I don't want to be on the outside. If I believe in Jesus that way, if I say him and him alone, there's only salvation in him, that you can't be saved and be a Muslim, you can't be saved and be a Mormon. You can't be saved and be a Hindu. If I say that, that'll push me, push me on the outside. That makes me politically incorrect. Guess what? You're in danger of being pulled away into what the Galatians were pulled away. And how did it leave them, guys? It left them only, as Paul says in verse 7, troubled, stirred up, agitated, confused, afraid. Listen, the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Guys, legalism isn't always making your life harder. Sometimes legalism makes your life easier. Sometimes it's easier to think, okay, if I can just come up with like seven rules that make, you know, that if I do those seven rules, then God's happy with me. Cool. I can do that. But when our faith has to be in Christ alone, when we recognize that we can never be good enough to approach the Father, but it's by grace alone that we're accepted, when we live in that place and say, oh Lord, not only am I saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but I, I have to be changed, Lord, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we get to that place, I'll tell you what, that puts us at odds with the majority of the population. It's a difficult place to be. But if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we need to be that way. If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we don't need to be grumpy old people that walk around going, we believe in Jesus, what do you believe in? (laughs) But we need to be the people that, that walk around going, we know that it's only Jesus that saves us. It's only Jesus who can save anybody. We know that the gospel is the very power of God and the salvation. And we want to authentically proclaim that and authentically demonstrate that in our relationships with each other. We want to be that kind of community. That's a gospel-centered church. Guys, the gospel is Jesus. Full stop. And that's what we need to stay focused on.